Hey there, lawyer listeners. Just a quick word before we get into our final episode of The Ark and Dove. First of all, if you like what you're hearing so far, please, please, please leave us a review. It helps get plenty of eyeballs and eardrums on our work. Also, if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Ark and Dove podcast. Even though this is our final episode, it will keep you aware of updates and any additional content we may put out there in the future. All right, now, oh, one more thing. We've gotten a few requests for interviews and story leads. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love hearing from you. Just drop us a line at balthasarmedia.com. That's balthasarmedia.com. All right, now back to the show. Here's Edward. In the last episode, Jay shared a story about the controversy surrounding the St. Francis Academy football team. And now in this final episode of The Ark and the Dove, we get to something that might feel a little closer to home for some of our listeners. For Jay and me, this project began in 2018 with an interest in the Black Catholic Church, particularly its history and what it might offer the whole church. But somewhere along the way, it became more than that. And in the summer of 2020, the project took a definitive shift and our questions became much more pointed. Often during that summer, Jay and I found that our friends were sending us videos and commentaries that were reactionary rather than thoughtful or compassionate. But we also didn't know how to confront our friends when they were sending us this stuff. And that's when we connected with Lewis. I do remember that I was I was a little bit hesitant at first just because I felt like it was going to be something that took some time. And I think I told... Edward, when we were talking, like, I need to pray about this, like, I need to like, discern if I need to take on more projects. And I was like, I'm trying to be more selective with the projects that I'm taking on. So I really want to pray and see if this is something that um, I want to do. And yeah, I mean, I just felt like the approach and kind of just the spirit that, that in the conversation that I was having with Edward and Jay, I just felt good about it. Like, I felt like these are guys who are really trying to ask good questions. They have a really good creative approach, it seems, and they're really open as well. And that made me feel good about it. I'm Edward Herrera, and this is The Ark and the Dove, a podcast about faith, resilience, and hope in the Black Catholic community in Baltimore. Once Lewis was on board, we asked him to introduce us to some individuals who could help round out the story. He did this and a lot more. Yeah, I definitely think uh, you're giving me too much credit there. Um, but honestly, I just try to read different authors and I have a great group of, of people that I've gotten to interact with, friends who ch- challenge me, you know, to look at different perspectives. Yes, the Catholic Church is racist. We've got more and more bishops who came out and said Black Lives Matter was a terrible, terrible, terrible social movement. I think that you didn't have to say that, Bishop, because you already proved it. The one thing that I think when it comes to systemic racism in America that I would say is is also true of the Catholic Church is that I think we ought to approach it from a way of we're doing really well in this category and we can still fight for ways that we can improve. And yet, among too many of us who proclaim to believe the teaching of the church about the dignity of the human person from the womb to the tomb, in the area of race, we were not able to fully grasp the implications of that belief. Making this podcast, Edward and I had conversations with some of Lewis's friends and other Black Catholic leaders from around the country. 
Some comments were honestly a little harder to hear, but all of them invited us and our church to do better. Since we were having conversations with people across the country, many were over Zoom, so some of the audio quality isn't what we would have wanted. We'll start with Chanel. Chanel Shaw is a Gen Z Catholic who is a co-founder of the Beyond Gethsemane Initiative and currently working for the effort in the Catholic Church called the Eucharistic Revival. I asked Chanel how she thought the church reacted to the death of George Floyd in the summer of 2020. I mean, it was the year of people that I was friends with, people that I am godmother to their children, people that I, you know, spent so much time with were saying horrible things in the name of, obviously, when we're talking about the church, like saying things like conservative or liberal, like don't, you know, really pertain to the way that the church practices um, in her essence. But people would be saying things in terms of the lives of other children of God of like, oh, well, these people deserve less. These people deserve more. These people were wrong. So then this punishment needs to be doled out like this. And I was just really shocked. And you can imagine because I just had thought that we were all on the same page. Chanel didn't really have anyone to talk with about how she was feeling. So I just kind of thought the way the church is in America is one way. Um, and so the shock really happened hard for me during that time of, of 2020. It, to the point where, I mean, I remember going on Instagram and not even knowing that other young Black Catholics my age even existed in America. I thought there were like five of us and there were two of them were speakers. One of them was married, like Damon Owens. And then I, I was, I just thought we didn't exist in America. I thought everyone in America has to, that's Black and faith practicing, has to be like, Protestant. Father Josh Johnson, the popular Catholic speaker, author, and vocations director for the Baton Rouge Diocese, offered his perspective on 2020. Uh, the church is the, the body of Christ. You're the church, I'm the church, we're the church. So there were members of the church who I think responded with profound humility and um, a desire to learn what they didn't know and what they weren't aware of. I, I met so many people who until uh, George Floyd uh, was murdered, they they didn't believe that this was still a problem, right? They they didn't believe it, even though Trayvon Martin was was murdered uh, a few years before that, and, and so many other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ um, experienced so many injustices. But it was something about watching his death and seeing somebody die that pierced the hearts of a lot of people who who will admit that they just were very cold-hearted to this topic, to this conversation, because they maybe they may have grew up in an exclusively white family, in an exclusively white neighborhood, going to an exclusively white church, an exclusively white school, and worked in an exclusively white environment. And so they didn't realize that stuff that people were saying was actually like a problem. So I, I think some people in the body of Christ responded with this profound empathy, compassion, humility, desires to learn so they can be a part of the solution. Lewis's friend, Nathan Crankfield is the founder of Seeking Excellence. He had this to say. I think it's it's difficult to say because so many reacted so differently, right? I think you can take this with any issue in the United States right now. And it's probably one of my least favorite things that's a reality of our church today is how divided the USCCB is and the bishops here in the U.S. because you have some who will, and even pastors right down to the pastoral level where you have at parishes that put up um, images of, I think it's CUA it was, that they put up like the image of Mary holding George Floyd with him having like the Saint Halo around his head, all the way to people who are like, ignore it and move on, you know? 
I think the church responded to the death of George Floyd the best, where they acknowledged that it was a serious cultural moment and didn't necessarily take sides in the incident because I don't think, especially early on, we knew enough of what happened to just assume that, yes, this was because of racism. Yes, this was unjust. Yes, this was a murder. And I encourage a lot of conservatives in general, but especially people within the church to say, hey, you know, people are, whether, whether you agree with them or not, whether you think they're wrong about how George Floyd died or not, it, they're in a painful place. And this is a great place to be pastoral and to care for them. But we have to be careful in there to not um, water down the truth of Christianity or church teaching, I think, at the same time. Shannon Schmidt, co-host of the Plaid Skirts and Basic Black podcast and founding member of Catholics United for Black Lives, thought we as a church missed the moment. I would say as a whole, I don't think the American church did very well just responding to the death of George Floyd. I think we really missed a moment to have a deep and profound dialogue and gave in, unfortunately, to the polarization that existed in our political system and unfortunately oftentimes existed across racial lines. I think that there were individual bishops and priests who were courageous in leading not only the call for justice, but also in pointing to the larger truth of what the church is, of, of who Jesus is and what he wants for people of every background. Uh, but there were many who either were a bit tepid in their response or were outright derogatory of, of Black people. And as Black Catholics, that is particularly disheartening uh, because I love this church. I love the Eucharist, the sacraments. I love Jesus. I love the teachings of the church, the rituals all of the tradition, all of the many ways that Catholicism is lived out in the day-to-day. I think part of the challenge is that some Catholics and people generally don't want to confront the reality that racism is still an issue in our church and in the world. Or even those who do believe racism still exists don't want to question their assumptions of where racism might still be found. When I spoke with Gloria Purvis, who's a popular speaker and podcaster for America Media, I asked her how she would respond to people who would say the death of George Floyd wasn't about race. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's, um, they don't know. I do. And I do because I know what it looks like. And I also understand the history of racism and policing in the United States. And the question they should be asking themselves, if they really want to know, is what movement and policing has occurred to counter the long history of racism involved with the surveillance of black people. Because they have to understand that policing, as we know it, around the black community started during slavery. And the same kind of, of surveillance and brutalization tactics that we see today existed then and out of the Knights of the White Chameleon, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, things like that, uh, those, those people went in, into policing. And those people and their, uh, how do you say it? I, don't, I guess I want to say descendants of the people who still have those same kind of beliefs and how they infected policing in the United States um, has spread across the country. And so the question should be, what long-term movement are they aware of to eradicate that within policing? And if they understand, understand that there isn't one, 
and they can understand how the roots of that still impact policing today. And also just the general dynamics around power and crime and, and Black people. <laughs> so I know it from what I saw. And, um, and they should also understand that perhaps if they don't see it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. In the summer of 2020, Nathan Crankfield wrote an open letter in three parts. One to his white family and friends, one to his black family and friends, and finally one to the church at large, where he shared his thoughts on race and racism. In my first letter that I wrote after the death of George Floyd in 2020 was to white friends and family. And one thing I talked about to them was this sense of wonder that you have when you're not white and you're in the church. And so I talked about how when I'm, uh, it's not even just in the church, it was actually just in the world, right? But if I'm at, at a store and somebody's looking at me funny, or if I'm, you know, driving and somebody like gives me a nasty look, or, or worse, I use the example of in the church. If I'm, if I'm sitting in the church and some white person walks by with a scowl on their face after I smile and wave at them, like, I'm like, I, you have to wonder, like, are, am I sitting in their seat or are they racist? And they're mad that I'm here because I'm black, right? Especially because I'm, you know, black and I got a tattoo sleeve. And sometimes if I'm sitting there in a, in a polo or something like that, like, you can't help but wonder. And so that's where I, I think that a lot of it, um, that can divide us. And that, that happens in both ways, right? That's, that's to me, a two-party issue. And I, I'm all about taking responsibility for your own half of the problem. And so for me, I have to be careful to say, Maybe that person, the way that I described it is, maybe that person is just a jerk, right? I use stronger language sometimes, you know, I like to curse in my podcast. So I'm like, maybe that person is just a jerk though, you know? So you don't, I, I can't assume that they're racist because I don't know. They could just be either having a bad day. For all I know, that woman with the scowl, her husband might've died yesterday, right? And I could be sitting in her seat where they sat together for 40, you know? Like you just don't know. At the same time, if you're white in an all white church and you see a young black man at church, maybe smile at them, you know, like it's not that hard either, even in the midst of difficulty to, to be kind to people. Uh, at least it shouldn't be for us, you know, who follow Christ. And so that I think is a twofold issue where we have to be mindful of those things and mindful of when you are the only person in the room of a certain skin color, um, that, that it feels uncomfortable. It's kind of naturally uncomfortable. And so we could go out of our way to introduce ourselves to them or to be kind and wave to them or sit by them, right? And not like kind of isolate them in a the, in the spot by themselves. That kind of stuff I think is really important because one thing I also shared in that same letter was all of my white friends and family, when they're the only white person in a room, right? Like I can remember with a lot of my friends growing up, whether we were going to the barbershop or certain restaurants in the city, like if they're the only white person there, they notice it immediately and they remember it. And so I'm like, every white person, if you remember the last person, the last time you were the only white person in the room, you were, you remember, like you, it sticks out to you. You talk about it, you share it with people and it's uncomfortable. And so imagine what it's like for those of us who are brown and black Catholics who often find ourselves being the only person of our skin color in the room and think of how we might feel the way that you felt when it was you and be a little bit kinder or, you know, flexible in your seat or whatever it might be. Yeah. So I think, I think that's really important too, for people to kind of understand that we can't, one, we can't assume that people are racist. They could just be mean um, or having a bad day. And then two, be a little bit kinder and understand that people might be worried about that, especially when tensions are high, like following the death of George Floyd. Father Josh Johnson. I, I just wonder what the theology is, right? Because by virtue of our fallen human nature, sin is a reality. And we're all going to struggle with sin to some level in our hearts and in our minds. 
I would question their understanding of sin and, and of theology, of, of, of the fruits of original sin, of concupiscence, because people struggle with lust, and, and people struggle with wrath, and people struggle with pride, and people struggle with envy. Um, people experience jealousy, and yes, I just don't understand how somebody could then therefore think that that racism could not be something that people could still struggle with uh, or benefit from um, and, and refuse to imitate Jesus and empty themselves of, of that. I, uh, I would probably want to engage them in a, con a further conversation about the understanding of sin and grace. Yeah, the idea that people aren't racist anymore, I think, is silly. I think, and I think that it's equally silly to think that people will never not be racist. And so you have those kind of hit both political aisles, right? Where you have people who believe that we can get to a point where people will never be racist anymore. Um, and you believe that uh, people aren't racist anymore. I think that both of those are ridiculous positions to hold because we're going to, I think that saying people won't be racist anymore is, is also like saying that people, we can get to a point where people aren't lustful anymore or where people aren't greedy anymore or angry anymore. Right. Like I just, I don't think we're going to have that until heaven. Um, so I think that's important to recognize. Since racism is a personal sin, a sin that one person commits, and I hope we can all agree on that. I wanted to explore the important conversation about systemic racism. From a Catholic perspective, if a sin is something that is wrong and that we knowingly and intentionally do, how can it be systemic? Shannon Schmidt of Catholics United for Black Lives was really helpful here. She starts by talking about the U.S. Bishop's Letter on Racism released in 2018. They talked about how sin can creep into all of our institutions and in particular how racism does that. So to give a, a, a very basic example, we all have individual sins that we commit um, and those are our own choosing and we are culpable for them. However, when we as individuals sin, especially when we as individuals are in the midst of institutions and in the midst uh, in places of power, our individual sins can create impacts on the systems around us and and building together. Right, if we if we have a group of people that are continually committing the same sin, uh, it can build upon each other. And so there are things like sinful laws that get codified into our our code, our penal code. Let's say this concept goes back to the Bible, the Gospel of John. And St. John Paul II wrote extensively on structures of sin. The Catechism reads that structures of sin are, quote, the expression and effect of personal sins, unquote, that lead their victims to do evil. They can also be called, quote, unquote, social sin. Because of the ways that the system is structured, uh, sin can have a greater impact on individuals in a way that becomes bigger than simply the individual choice to commit a sin. And so um, I think we see that in our church, specifically when it comes to race, when we look at the history of the church. You know, if you look at uh, some churches in the South in particular, you have places where uh, Black parishioners were forced to build their own churches, their own schools, where they weren't allowed to come to Mass at a white parish. And they sort of had to make do and have less because of the racism that was prevalent in our country. And uh, we also see instances where even in churches in the North, where 
black parishioners were made to wait and to receive communion until all of the white parishioners had received communion, right? At, the, at this very sacred moment in the liturgy when we're literally supposed to be breaking down every barrier for communion with the Lord and with each other. People were actually creating more barriers between people and um, in that sense, fracturing the body of Christ. And uh, we also see that in some of the ways that individual bishops or religious orders participated in the system, first of enslavement or later things like Jim Crow. And, and we could talk about this beyond policing. We could talk about it when we're talking about access to healthy food, when we're talking about health outcomes, when we're talking about just the, the sheer amount of green space that exists in neighborhoods. All of these things are realities that taken individually may not intentionally be aimed at oppressing black and brown folks, but when taken as a whole and the entire impact on the life of black and indigenous people of color, it creates a world in which we have a starting line that's further back. We're gonna take a short break and then we'll continue the conversation about the racial divide in the church including the question of reparations. Before the break, we were talking about social sin and systemic racism. Now Lewis takes us to a conversation that he had with a recently retired bishop. Lewis here. Unfortunately, the church institutionally, minus a few bishops and leaders, is still wrestling with questions of race and racism. And honestly, the church has struggled to even adequately incorporate an account for the black Catholic experience into the wider Catholic church. Retired Bishop Edward Braxton has spoken and written extensively on the racial divide in the church and the U.S. He was most recently the Bishop of Belleville and has doctorates from the Catholic University in Louvain and taught everywhere from Harvard to the pontifical faculties in Rome. But he also happens to have led a small group Bible study with me and was kind enough to speak with me about the subject of the church's engagement with the African-American experience. If you were to examine Catholic journals and periodicals, you would see that the church was not particularly attentive to or in dialogue with these essential African-American voices with the possible exception of Dr. King. So statements by the Catholic Church have not been significantly informed by the voices that have articulated the depth and the meaning of the African-American experience. This lack of history and dialogue underscores the difficulty that the Church might encounter in seeking a genuine conversation in the age of the Black Lives Matter movement. He then went on to recount a conversation he had with another bishop. And this bishop was a good person. Uh, said, well, it was ever thus. The, the church is the church is the church. So she is never going to really be comfortable with uh, hand clapping and foot stomping and hallelujahs. It was ever thus. It's, it's better if, if people of color want to join the church, they have to join the church as it is and not expect the church to change her ways. And, and the person who said that didn't seem to realize that the church has changed over the years in many ways. The church did not it was not founded in Western Europe. Uh, the church emerged out of a Mediterranean world. Uh, the church emerged out of it. And there's no necessary reason why uh, Eurocentric music, Eurocentric art, Eurocentric prayer styles must be exclusive. 
it doesn't mean the church should deny and reject her history, uh, which is a, a history of brilliant uh, developments from Europe, but there's no reason why it should not be truly Catholic, authentically black and truly Catholic. Um, something that really struck me was there were a lot of things that I didn't even think about until I became an adult. Again, Chanel Shaw. So even thinking about like St. Augustine being dark-skinned, something I didn't even think about. Because growing up, I would see all the illustrations of St. Augustine and St. Monica would be like these very pale Anglo people. And then I got older and people were like, well, did you actually know he was from Africa? And I was like, I had no, <laughs> I had no idea. Like so many things that I didn't know, so many people in the faith, like movers and shakers that were, you know, black or brown. And um, I had no idea. And it's interesting because even in my home parish, we have stained glass windows that we, I think we got when I started high school, they have different saints on them. And I think one of the saints is like St. Josephine Bakita. And growing up, she was, I thought that black Catholics and black saints just weren't something that existed but it was something that I just kind of thought was just the way that the church is in the way that she practices in the way that her liturgies are I just kind of thought that is how it is and then I got older and people were sharing with me about their parishes that they go to I moved to New Orleans after college and I attended a black Catholic parish there and I just remember being in the pews and being shocked at like the way that we would cross the aisles to hold hands during the Our Father, and the way that we were clapping during the hymns. I was just so, so shocked. In in many ways, I'd grown up thinking that that was disrespectful and it was never appropriate. Only in recent years has the church been engaging with the African-American experience. But even worse than that, the church in the U.S. has been guilty of participating in the enslavement of African people. Even the first bishops, and the church's collusion and racism continued through Jim Crow and segregation, with only a few exceptions. Listeners might recall the story that Father Joseph Brown, who is a professor in the Department of Africana Studies at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, told at the end of our first episode. Father Brown talked about how his parents were turned away from the Catholic Church by their local Catholic priest. I actually asked him why he stayed in the Catholic Church knowing his parents' experience and that of other black Catholics. You know who asked me that question once? Daniel Berrigan. I was driving him around Omaha one day. Sorry to interrupt, but if you don't know Daniel Berrigan, he was a Jesuit priest and pacifist whose life could actually be the subject of another podcast. Really, if you don't know him, you should look him up. So we were driving back and he said, can I just ask you a question? Why do you stay? And I said, shouldn't I be asking you that question, Dan? My parents own the Catholic Church. They took possession of it when they said, we shall persist, we shall overcome. So why would I want to leave what's mine? I am committed to it because my parents and grandparents saw something in me when I was a child and said, "You," and so did the nuns and the priests that sustained me both in East St. Louis and in Beloit, Wisconsin. That's called faith. I don't always know what I've got, but when other people say, oh, you got this, you can do this, that's defined my life. 
But if I am to do what they sacrificed and prayed to see happen, I'm honoring people. Because if I went anywhere, I would still be in a racist society, in a racist world. So at least I've got the opportunity to make a difference and to help educate and sustain others who feel the same way. So that's basically why I do what I do. Father Josh answered the same question. Why not just leave the church then if the church is so messy and broken? Uh, because Jesus didn't. So Jesus Christ, he could have said whenever the apostles, so he, again, he invested in them, he ordained them at the Last Supper. So they were ordained at the Last Supper. And then their very first thing that they were invited to do was to sit, watch, and pray. And they disobeyed him. And then they abandoned him. And then Peter cursed in front of his presence. And then Peter cut somebody's ear off and then abandoned him and then denied him three times. Um, he could have been like, you know what? I'm going to choose a new church now. I'm, I'm going to establish another church because clearly the, the 12 I invested in, they're a hot mess. Like Judas just hung himself and, and Peter's weeping over there crying because he denied me. And, and Thomas left the group and I, I'm going to choose a new group of people. But he did not do that. We are invited to imitate Jesus. Like he's the, he's the master, he's the model. It's Jesus I'm looking at. I don't look at what John Smith did. I'm not looking at what Martin Luther did. I'm looking at Jesus Christ, the son of God. Because as a Christian, I imitate Jesus. I don't imitate Luther. I don't imitate Cal uh, Calvin. I don't imitate Wesley or Smith. Uh, I don't imitate them, I imitate Jesus. And Jesus Christ was unwilling to leave his bride, the church. This resonates with me. Since in my own way, I've had to wrestle with faith, and how to reconcile the divine part of the church with the human part. I think when it comes to racism, we Catholics should do more to repair the relationship we have with one another, even if we don't feel like we're directly responsible. Again, Gloria Purvis. I, I absolutely believe we should be making reparations for the sin of racism again because it's chiefly an offense against God, and secondly, because it's a way to repair in a spiritual sense the bonds of the human families that have been ripped apart by this sin. And it is also a way to reject the lies of the enemy about the human family. Yeah, I think it's a very important conversation because it is a biblical conversation. Again, if we're more rooted in the Bible than we are in our politics, then I think a lot more people be open to this dialogue. But because so many people can tend to, to not be aware of scripture, uh, then, then discord happens in the community. So reparations are biblical. Um, to, to repair means to make it right. If you remember in the New Testament, it's the case, whenever he was reconciled to Jesus, uh, he wasn't reconciled to his community until he made it right. And he paid them back four times what he took, which again goes back to the, the Old Testament law. Uh, in the Bible, Ezra and Daniel also, they made reparations as well. They offered up prayers and penances, not only for their sins, but also for the sins of other people and the sins of their ancestors who passed away. And so I think that, that reparations, spiritually speaking, first and foremost, clearly has a place in our, in our Catholic tradition, right? And a lot of times you don't have to make these grand pronouncements that I'm doing this and I'm doing that. You know what I mean? That we specifically put ourselves in prayer in front of the Lord and say, Lord, I am praying to make reparations for the sins of racism. And we ask the Lord to inspire us to acts of love, uh, contrary to the acts of hate or the acts of indifference and malice and ambivalence that um, the sin of racism 
brings about in human persons, that we would be the counter to that, you know, that we could see as he sees, that we could love as he loves in this area. And it also would be, if you have anything to do with budgets and things like that, looking at how the sin of racism maybe has impacted negatively the Black community in the boundaries of your diocese. I asked Gloria for more specific, concrete examples. What about the funding among schools? How are schools that serve predominantly Black uh, communities, Catholic schools and predominantly Black communities, resourced or not? You know, people might say, oh, but, you know, the, the tuition is low and these people aren't paying the tuition. Da, da, da. Well, what might a diocese do to support those schools and fund those schools and resource those schools? How might they use their budget differently in account, on account of trying to make repair for the sin of racism? And so there's no reconciliation without proper reparation without people also making it right. And so there's a difference between forgiveness and apologies, but also like, let's try to make this right. Shannon Schmidt. And so as as a church, I think we need to dig in and go beyond just the celebratory events that, that sort of point to diversity and really say, how can we better get into the things that are cultural markers that make us different, but help us to learn better about how to be human together and ultimately what that reveals about who God is. Problem is, but the problem is we're not rooted in this word. We're more rooted in our politics are more rooted in our political parties. We know more about, about our politicians than we do about the basis of our faith. St. John Chrysostom, he said a number of years ago, he said, every form of discord in the church comes from a lack of knowledge of scripture. And so if we were more rooted in scripture, if we were more rooted in the word of God, then we would be inspired and motivated by the word of God to do what the word of God says, which is to go out and to invite all people into the church. And right now we do not see that, especially um, in the uh, body of Christ in the United States of America. We don't see that. When I spoke with Bishop Braxton, he pointed out just how difficult it is to have these sorts of meaningful conversations with others, even friends. People don't want to talk about it because I suppose partly they don't know the answer or they may feel, well, this is a terrible social problem in the United States, but I'm not the one doing it. I'm not involving in, in racial conflict. I'm not personally excluding people from education, from employment, from professional advancement. I'm not calling people names. I'm not using my using a weapon to take the lives of people of color. I'm not personally culpable of this. So other than praying about it, and asking the Lord to to guide people and call it, cause a conversion of hearts, I don't know what else to do, and I don't want to get into one of these embarrassing conversations where I am made to feel guilty as if the, the crimes of a few become the blame of the many. And for this reason, I think one would be hard-pressed to find in the United States groups of people of diverse backgrounds who regularly talk about these terrible headlines and try to share their own point, points of view, their own feelings, their own anger, their own frustration, their own disappointment. It's much easier to talk about the basketball game, the football game, the baseball game, the TV show, the movie, uh, the coronation of King Charles, anything other than these instances because there is no simple answer. There is no explanation that is adequate. And no one, when I, when I, I ask people sometimes, 
at the end of Mass on Sunday, are you willing to take just a few minutes and open yourself to a conversation with a co-worker or someone who lives near you or someone you know of a different background and tell them you would like to talk about these topics because you'd like to understand their point of view better and you would like them to understand your point of view. And I've actually asked people to do this and encourage them to do this. Generally, they demur. They demur. They say, well, Bishop, you know, I just wouldn't be comfortable doing that. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I don't want anybody to think that I'm prejudiced or here I am prejudiced. I try to keep it and uh, keep my biases and prejudices uh, in control. It's just so, it's so threatening. I'd rather talk about the weather, talk about gardening, talk about going shopping, anything other than the racial divide in the United States. This really resonated with me because there have been times where Jay and I have felt paralyzed while making this podcast. We were scared of saying the wrong thing in the wrong way and being criticized for it. And honestly, there are times where we probably did say the wrong thing in the wrong way. You know, at the start of this project, I had my, I had my worldview, right? But my experience growing up, I grew up in New York City. New York's a very diverse city. But our community in particular was very segregated, predominantly Irish, Italian, Polish, Catholic community in Queens. Long Island was kind of split. We lived there for a couple of years. It was 50-50, Jewish, Catholic. Then I moved to rural Pennsylvania, right? So it was a total culture shock. And it's always been kind of hard to nail down what my worldview is. But I know over the past five years that I came to know the people I spoke to and actually being in the same room, breathing the same air, looking them in the eye, it forced me to let my guard down a little, to turn off the filter of bias and those polarizing catchphrases we often hear in our own echo chambers. It's definitely softened me around the edges as to where we are and how we got here. And, you know, it seems kind of stereotypical to say this, like, oh, I wanted to do this thing and I came out with so much more. But that's exactly what happened. And it was really unexpected. And I, I don't know what the experience of listening to this will be, but I was immersed in this story for five years. But it's difficult for me to believe anyone who is as immersed in this would not come out changed. And the degree to which that change is, is still hard for me to define because I'm still trying to understand what was shaping my worldview outside of this story these past five years. You know, life experience, your surroundings, all these types of things can shape us, mold us. But this has been incredible. Our team worked hard to get as many people involved as we could. And we spent so much time on this project that it's really personal. We've received some criticism for the project, right? And it's not all been positive. Um, and it, and so that's, that's hard because you feel like you want to um, share a story that's worthwhile. And so whenever someone says that they, they don't like it, that's, that's hard. But one of the interesting conversations, and it was an email from a woman, she, she just said, um, I just, at some point I'd like to know why this story matters so much to you. Mm, wow. And I was like, I, I wasn't sure whether it was like an accusation, like, why do you care? So you like, or whether it was just a, why are you so interested in this? You know, I've been thinking about it since I got that email. Just like, why, why are we so, you know, cause I mean, Jay in particular spent a lot of hours, you know, I've spent a lot of hours. We've all spent a lot of hours. And so like, why are these stories so important to get out there? And I think that 
I think that the more that we heard the stories, the more that we knew the project was important, you know? Yeah, I got so much out of working closely with you guys on this project and, and getting to know Lewis better. It's actually reminding me of something you said, Lewis, in one of our earlier conversations on healing the wound of racism. So what is the response to this core wound? Well, the reality is that nothing will fundamentally heal this core wound apart from authentic, vulnerable, interpersonal encounter. It doesn't sound elegant to people. It doesn't sound big enough or expansive enough. But for people that have really entered into attempts to facilitate or continue long-term investment in interpersonal encounter, you realize that it's actually the most transformative possible experience that there is. Fully receiving the other, fully seeing the other for who they are, and not just a quick in and out visit, but long-term relationship in building those authentic and vulnerable encounters. You are making a bold stand against the lingering wounds of segregation and division. You look at the policies of the past. So many of the policies of the past, slave codes, black codes, Jim Crow, etc., were centered around preventing that very thing. And that long-term, authentic, interpersonal relationship with a person helps you to see them as fully human. It doesn't mean that policies don't have a part to play. But fundamentally, no policy can force a human being to love another human being as they deserve to be loved. The Ark and the Dove was written and produced by Edward Herrera and Jay Lampard with help from Louis Damani Jones. Editing and creative direction by Sarah Perla. Theme, outro music, and sound design by Jay Lampard. Additional music by Dietrich Goodwin and the St. Bernardine's Choir. Artwork by Tom Grillo. Thank you to the OSV Institute for Catholic Innovation and the Notre Dame Idea Center for their early support. Most importantly, thanks to the countless individuals willing to share their story for the making of this podcast. The Ark and the Dove is a production of Balthazar Media. For more information, please visit balthazarmedia.com. 